Go ahead and open with prayer and we'll get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness, Lord. We thank you for another year as we mark it on the calendar. We thank you for all the years that you give to us, all the days, every one. It's an opportunity to serve you and a gift of your grace. And every day we're reminded that your mercies are new every morning. And so be merciful to us today. Help us to focus on your word. Help us to be changed by it as we seek you in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We're going to do the great Shema um, today. And this is a really important part of Deuteronomy. Um, The Shema is hear, O Israel. Shema in Hebrew is to hear or to know, come to know, to to listen, but mainly to hear, listen, obey. You know, when we say listen to me, we don't just mean, you know, understand what I'm saying. We mean do what I say, and that's that's the idea. Hear, O Israel. Hear, Hear and obey. And I want to remind us right from the beginning, as we get into this section... What Paul says in Romans 7, chapter 7, what shall we say then, is the law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law. For I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. Now remember last time, if you remember, we looked at the Ten Commandments. I know it's been several weeks because I've been doing the question, uh, you know, uh, asked the pastor the last two weeks, but the last time we were in Deuteronomy, we looked at the Ten Commandments and we saw the uh, different way of understanding the covet command and the Roman Catholic and Lutheran tradition being two commandments for coveting and the um, Protestant and Jewish understanding of one command for coveting. And I think uh, Paul in the inspiration of the Spirit in Romans 7, when he just says, you shall not covet, summarizing it all, clearly sides with the um, Protestant Jewish understanding that there's just one law for coveting. And so um, uh, that's part of it. But the other part of it is that the law is good. And that's what we notice here. Paul says the law is good. The law is not sin. And so if you remember, um, we saw the historical prologue of the book, that's where we're in, the first part of Deuteronomy, chapter 1, all the way through chapter 4, verse 43, is the prologue. Then we get into the law. So we've been in the law since chapter 5, and now we saw that in chapter 5, at the end of the Ten Commandments, right after he gives the Ten Commandments again, where we left off last time, there is in verse 23 to 27 what I'm calling the trauma of holiness. And I want you to just notice this. So in verse 23, so it was. So God here is recalling to Israel what happened on Mount Sinai 40 years earlier. So it was when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness while the mountain was burning with fire that you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, and you said, surely the Lord God The Lord our God has shown us his glory, his greatness, and we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. And we have seen this day that God speaks with man, yet he still lives. Now, therefore, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore. 
then we shall die. So this is what they actually said back in Exodus 20 when God appeared to them. So, I mean, I said 40 years. It's really 38 or 39 because they're right at the end of the 40-year period. And it was the first, after the first year. It took them about a year to get to Sinai and get the commandments. And so it says, verse 26, Who is there of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? So these are the people speaking to Moses. And then they say, You go near and hear all that the Lord our God may say. And you tell us all that the Lord our God says to you. And we will hear and we will do it. So you can see the people are asking for a mediator. And they're asking for the mediator because of the fearfulness of God's manifestation of himself on Mount Sinai. And if you go back to Exodus 19 especially, and it talks about the whole mountain quaking violently, and the smoke, and the fire on the mountain, and the sound of a trumpet, which clearly is not a human-blown trumpet, which would have been pretty terrifying to hear some angelic you know, choir blowing trumpets, or a trumpet. And so all of that had the effect of them saying to Moses, we can't listen to God anymore. We're going to die. You go and listen. You tell us what he said and you come back to us. Now, you may th- hear that and say, wow, that's, that's unfortunate. You know, why would they do that? Why wouldn't they personally want to hear from God? Um, and <clears throat> that's the theology, though, of mediation. You go and listen You tell us what God says and come and tell us. So you hear God and you tell us. So Moses would stand between the people and God. That's a mediator. And God intentionally appeared this way to excite within them the desire for a mediator. In other words, what I'm saying to you is that God is pleased with this attitude. God is not, oh, they don't want to listen to me. I have to talk to this schlub Moses and then they'll hear him. God is pleased. This is exactly what God wanted. God wanted them to ask for a mediator. God wanted them to see their need of somebody who would go close to God because they can't live there. They can't live in this fearful place of hearing God. And that's what, so that's what they say in verse 27. And then verse 28, Moses reflects upon what they said. Then the Lord heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And said, you go and listen, we can't listen anymore. And the Lord said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They are right in all that they have spoken. Do you see that? It is good and right for the Israelite nation, the common people of Israel, to recognize we need somebody to go between us and God. That's the very lesson God's trying to teach them. The theology of mediation... The desire now of a mediator that God's people actually have. They recognize his holiness is traumatic and they cannot come near and live in his divine presence. And so in verse 29, we get this wonderful expression of God's heart. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and always keep all my commandments that it might be well with them And with their children forever. So here is God expressing a longing. Again, an anthropopassism that God has passions like we have. That's a figure. I mean, God is not 
changing. You know, these passions come upon him. God is perfect in his being at all times. He is perfectly active at all times in all of his being, all content, knows all things. So things don't come upon him. But still, God is expressing to us how, how much and how, uh, how much he delights in and how much he desires that God's people would, would feel this, would feel their desire for a mediator. Because God wants the best for us, and this is the best for us that we would understand that we need somebody to go between us and God. Okay? So what we're seeing here in in verse 29 is God's will of disposition. God saying, this is my will. Oh, that my people would always feel this way. That they would always have such a heart in them. Right? I mean, God is the one who gives new hearts. God could give them all this heart. But God's saying, oh, that they would want this. Oh, that they themselves would just have this. I mean, God's desire for men is that they would repent. Nobody does repent unless God causes them to be born again. But God still desires that people would. Because we should want to turn away from sin. And we should want to turn to what's good. And it's a crying shame that we don't unless God regenerates us. That's a, that's a mark on us. But God is good and perfect. And he, yes, of course, he would desire that his image bearers would hate evil and love good. And that his image bearers would fear him. Because this would help them. They would turn away from sin. And that's, so God's expressing that. All right. And so this desire for a mediator that God wants his people to have. Oh, that they would always understand that they would always fear me. Because the fear of the Lord will keep us from sin. That's going to come out, Lord willing, in the sermon a little bit later today, too. But uh, then verses 30 to 33, <clears throat> just want to notice here, this is not earning God's blessing, but it's avoiding the extra sort of sinfulness that would bring judgment. Um, and so I want you to notice that. Verse 30 to 33, Go and say to them, Return to your tents. But as for you, stand here by me, and I will speak to you all the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, which you shall teach them. That's what they asked for. Moses will listen to you, and then he'll tell us what you said. That they may observe them in the land which I am giving them to possess. Therefore, you shall be careful to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand, Or to the left, you shall walk in all the ways which the Lord your God has commanded you, that it may that you may live, and that it may be well with you, and that you may prolong your days in the land which you shall possess. And again, sometimes people can misunderstand this and say, Oh, God is saying that if you keep my commandments well enough, you'll earn, you know, blessings. That's not what he's saying. He's telling them to walk in his commandments as sinners imperfectly. You know, part of his commandments were bring sacrifices when you sin, when you sin. God knows they sin. But there's a difference between walking in God's commandments and trying to follow him. At the same time, sitting and bringing the commandments and being sorry and going through repentance and all that. There's a difference between that and running after sin. And celebrating it and seeking to live in it and seeking to justify it and seeking to excuse it. Huge difference, right? One is what a believer does. The other one is what an unbeliever does. So God is desiring that they would live godly before him and not provoke him to bring judgment. Which is interesting, again, because this is exactly what we're going to see in Sodom and Gomorrah. Remember when Abraham is pleading, you know, if there be 50 righteous, 40, 30, 20, 10. And I argued before you that... Moses, I'm sorry, Abraham is not saying, oh, if if there's only 50 completely sinless and perfect people in Sodom, don't destroy it. 
Abraham knows there are no such people. Abraham knows he himself is a sinner. He wasn't pleading for that. He was pleading for, for 50, 40, 30, 20, 10 people who, who are turning away from the wickedness of the city of Sodom and trying to live an upright life. Again, as sinners. Just people who fear God and try to turn away from evil. Again, we can't earn blessing from God, but we can provoke his judgment by being overzealous in sin. And that's part of the fear of the Lord to understand that, right? And so that's what we're seeing here at the end of chapter 5. And what really comes out again is the desire for a mediator. Why am I saying that? Because that's who Christ is. Remember, Christ is showing us himself in the Old Testament. Jesus said as much when he taught the disciples that Moses wrote about him. Well, where did Moses wrote about him? Moses never writes the name Jesus, right? Moses wrote about him here. When the people are longing for a mediator, longing for someone to go between them and God, guess what? Moses isn't that person. It's only by the grace of God that Moses can walk in that role. But Moses himself, as he stands between the people and God, he needs somebody to stand between him and God. He needs someone. And that ultimately is Christ. Christ really is the only mediator between God and man, not just from Bethlehem on, but from the garden on. And whenever somebody like an Abraham or like a Jacob or like a Moses is raised up to function in that position, that's showing us our need of Christ. That person can't do it. That person, they themselves have to bring an offering to God and so forth. And so uh, this, this desire for a mediator, again, God is showing his people their need of Christ, their need of the ultimate mediator, the one who will crush the head of the serpent. That's not Moses. But Moses functioned in that role for a time to show them, again, that they need Jesus. And that's what we're seeing here at the end of chapter 5. So, I just want to notice here then that within this um, passage is uh, an emphasis on the continuity of the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, and and what I want to just point out with this, I'm on Roman, Roman numeral 2 is that everything that God is doing with his people under Moses is a follow-up to, a fulfillment of his promises and a furtherance of his relationship to Abraham. Over and over again, God's going to say, and he does say in the book of Deuteronomy, the reason why he's doing what he's doing with Israel is because he made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's really important because what we don't want to do is say, well, Abraham knew God by faith and by grace, but Moses and the people had to keep the commandments and they knew God by the law. That is a wrong understanding. Everything God's doing with Moses and Israel, he's doing to fulfill what he said he would do to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Seven times in Deuteronomy, God calls himself the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's how Israel knows him. Not the God of some new law covenant that Abraham didn't know. Abraham had to keep the commandments just as much as Moses. God said to Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. But but Moses and the people of Israel, they uh, are saved by grace and by faith just as much as as, uh, Abraham. And we don't want to lose that. So there's a continuity here. The Mosaic Covenant, as we talk about it in covenant theology, is a further administration of the covenant of grace. It's not a new covenant of works. It emphasizes the law because at that point in time, the law needed to be emphasized. 
In Abraham, the emphasis is on the seed. Right? But it's the same grace, the same faith that saves anybody, and the same law that Christians are supposed to keep, or they'll be judged. <clears throat> so, uh, let's just look again at one verse here to, to point this out. De- Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 37, it's in your outline, but where God says, Because he loved your fathers, therefore he chose his descendants after them, and he brought you out of Egypt. So because of his love, his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that's why Israel, he's loving you and giving you the law. All right, so this is the reason for God's interest in Israel. He's linked himself to them by way of covenant. He chose Abraham. That's why he saved them from Egypt. He had to. It was necessary. Remember all the way back in Genesis, he did tell Abraham, your descendants will be slaves in another land for 400 years. Then I will bring them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And so part of his promise to Abraham was what we're seeing in Deuteronomy to Israel. All right. So that's what we see in letter D. And then in uh, Exodus 6 now, I want to get into this Shema passage here. But God reminds them that he heard their groaning um, all the way back in Exodus of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage. And I've remembered my covenant, not Now I'm going to do a new thing with Moses. No, I remembered what I said to Abraham. So now I'm going to bring them out and form them into a people um, with great judgments and so forth. So so that's the continuity. That brings us up to speed to where we're at in Genesis chapter 6. And here I want you to notice the priority of love. The priority of love. Really, Deuteronomy is an emphasis on the love of God for his people. I know we don't think about the Old Testament that way. Sometimes we want to say the Old Testament, you know, we have this view maybe of, um, of the world or, or of worldly Christianity that God was a more sort of lawful, legalistic, wrathful God in the Old Testament. And Jesus has calmed him down a lot now and we can approach God now. And that is a completely wrong view of God. It's Jesus who in the Old Testament is showing his wrath. Jesus is showing his wrath in the Old Testament. And it's God the Father who so loved the world that he sent his son in the New Testament. So we never want to set God against God. Clearly, the love of God is more emphasized and it comes out more and it's greatly understood more in the New Testament because it's that time now in the New Testament uh, to understand that more. So uh, the idea in Deuteronomy, though, is God has loved you, therefore you love God. And this love is going to be paramount. It's going to be seen in action. As the people walk in love, they're going to behave differently. So love is seen in a sincere, chosen action of the people. And love does what is good for the one who is loved. So when we love God, what do we do? We want to glorify him. We want to do what would, would, would show his glory. Because that's what we ought to do. Um, So uh, affection and desire is assumed in love. We should want to do it, right? If I have to force myself to do it, that's really not what we want ultimately. Your wife doesn't want you to force yourself to buy her flowers on your birthday or something or on her birthday, right? She wants you to want to do it. That's part of love, right? We we, we want to show that desire. We we desire God. But um, the primary attribute of love is that you you do something, you act, right? God so loved the world that he gave, that he sacrificed his son, something that all things being equal, God didn't want to do. 
God didn't delight in seeing his son die on the cross. But he so loved the world that he gave. He did something that, again, humanly speaking, made him very sad to see his son die on the cross. And that love was such that he did it. All right. Okay, so let's look down now. Let's get to the Shema, the actual text of the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. This is probably the most important passage to Jews today. This passage that summarizes really the whole covenant of God with Israel as the Jews understand it. Again, not believing that the Messiah has come, thinking they're still waiting for him. But this is where they will go when they want to talk about their faith in God. And it's the hear, O Israel, right? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, is the way they would say it. Shema Yisrael, Yisrael, the Lord is one, right? There are no gods like the Lord. The Lord is the only God. Exodus 15:11 God says Who is like you O Lord among the gods who is like you glorious in holiness fearful in praises doing wonders in other places Deuteronomy 3:24 O Lord God you have only begun to show your servant your greatness your mighty hand for what god is there in heaven or in our earth who can do anything like you and your works and your mighty deeds Remember Pharaoh's objection in in Exodus was that he didn't know the Lord he had his gods. He didn't know the Lord. Exodus 5, 2. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go. All right. So Israel knew the Lord by experiencing his saving acts. Pharaoh, by the way, comes to know the Lord too. Because God says, he, they, they will know I'm the Lord when I destroy them. When I do my works of power in them. But Israel came to know the Lord by his saving acts. And that's why in Exodus 20, God says, you know, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of Egypt. That's how you know me. You know what I did. I brought you out of Egypt. So Israel knew God because of God's acts. And God is the only God. He is the one God. And he reminds them in Deuteronomy 5, again, I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. So both times when the commandments come in. But this salvation that God has created creates an obligation But the salvation was because God loved them. And so God's people now ought to love him. Right? And that's our duty. Our fundamental duty of Israel was that they were to love God. Remember when Jesus is asked the greatest commandment. That you shall love the Lord your God. This is the greatest, the most important, the primary, the first. You shall love the Lord your God. And and this is right out of Deuteronomy. This is part of the Shema. That's what I said. This is the most important verse in Israel. Jesus affirmed it. The, The primary commandment. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength. This is what Deuteronomy is about. That we should love the Lord our God. Now again, I'm looking at it in the context of Israel coming out of Egypt, but we as Christians know this is still true for us. We know God a lot more. We know God through his son. We have his spirit in a way they didn't. 
but it hasn't changed. We are to love God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our strength. It was Jesus' answer again in both Matthew and Mark. What is the greatest commandment? By the way, Jesus adds your mind. He adds a fourth thing. We just have the three here in Deuteronomy. It wasn't that they weren't supposed to love God with their mind. But there's a fuller revelation and unfolding. And oftentimes when you get the Old Testament quoted in the New, you get a little bit more. Or it's a little bit different to bring out a different emphasis. It's never different in that it contradicts the Old. But the New Testament, again, the Holy Spirit is speaking about his words. And maybe he wants to explain something a little more when he speaks it again. So, Deuteronomy 10, 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all of his ways, and to love him. To serve the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul. So you get it repeated in Deuteronomy. And again, the way it appears in Deuteronomy 10 is like, this is it. This is what God wants. He, it's not like he's up there saying, I really want people to not eat pork. You know, so I'm going to do these pork things and this shellfish thing over here. And I really want people to sprinkle water on them when they have a dead body near them. And that's really important. That, all that stuff, symbolic. They need to do it. It keeps them separate from the nations. There was a lot of purposes in that. But what God really wants his people to do is to love him. That's what he desires. That we would love him as he loves us. And that's what we see Again, emphasized here in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 13. And it shall be that if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So obedience is not separated from love in the Old Testament, even as it's not in the New Testament, where Jesus says, if you love me, Forget about my law because law isn't love. And, you know, if you really have love, you can't have... No. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's what you'll do. If you really love me, you'll keep my commandments. And that's all Deuteronomy is saying. If you earnestly obey my commandments, to love the Lord your God. This, you know, I mean, Jesus, as I said to you, quotes Deuteronomy almost more than any other book in the, in the Old Testament. And that's because Jesus is teaching the people of God to love God. And the book of Deuteronomy brings that out better than pretty much any other book in the Old Testament. That we would love God with all of our heart, soul, minds, and people. By the way, <clears throat> this is unique in the ancient world. The ancient world had gods and goddesses and worship and sacrifices and a lot of things that we see in Israel. Why? Because Satan is aping the truth and trying to lead people away from the true God. And so he's giving them a lot of the same things in a different context. The same thing he does today. Tries to counterfeit the truth. Right? We have a lot of false Christs, false religions today. Christian cults, false gospels. That's always been a plague in the church. Why? Because again, Satan wants to draw people into destruction. And he knows the true gospel. And if he can have a counterfeit that looks like it, right... That's the beauty of counterfeiting. You want it to look as much like the real thing as you can. That's how you fool you know, people. And that's how you can use your counterfeit bills. Well, Satan and his religion, he loves to get it close to the truth. The closer to the truth he can get it, the better in a certain sense. As long as he teaches that salvation is by your works. Because then you don't, you're not saved if you believe that. And as long as he teaches some corruption of the true God. Jesus isn't equal with God. He's not. As long as he can... Get that into the false religion. Everything else can be exactly what the Bible says. 
You know, Mormonism has a great emphasis on, on, on godly families. They just have a different God. All right, so all that other stuff is important. But so um, Israel is unique among the ancient peoples in their, in their monotheism. Almost across the board, if you study, and of course the you know, so-called uh, religion um, teachers in the 19th century began to see this and began to, to theorize an evolution of religion, and that religion started off you know, as in animism. You've all heard this. Religion started off in animism. You have these primitive people worshiping the rocks and the trees and the streams because the stream God must bring us refreshment and the, the sky God brings us light and all that. And, and they just, you know, identified gods and goddesses all around them. And then they got more sophisticated and they decided that, you know what? Gods have to be like humans because humans are rational and we can, we can control a lot of the stuff in the environment. So gods must be like us. So then they take a big step forward, again, according to the theory of the evolution of religion. And then you create the, the pantheons, right? And then you have Athena and Zeus and Poseidon and Hades and all these different gods and goddesses that are, that are human. That are, you know, rational beings that look like men and women. And that's a great step forward, the religion evolutionists tell us. As man is evolving and becoming more sophisticated. And then, <clears throat> uh, well, I actually don't know if that comes later than this. The, these two are, are but, but you get the idea that each, each city, each town, each country, whatever, each people have their own particular gods, right? You know, you have the god of the Philistines. And the God of Israel, and the God of the Syrians, and the God of the Babylonians. And whenever a nation would go to war, they would, and if they would win, they would say, Well, our God is better than your God, because we went to war and we defeated you, and, and so forth. And so you have like sort of this privatization now that, okay, it's, yeah, there are other gods, but our God's the main God. Our God's the most powerful God. Again, in a certain sense, you know, again, the religion and evolution is saying, oh, look, another step forward. Man is evolving. And then finally, at some point, Israel develops monotheism, where not only is their God their God, but he is the only God. And again, if you read these guys, and this all starts in the Tubingen school and the, uh, with Harnack and all these other guys, uh, the German uh, schools and the liberal theology, um, that this is what you see in the Bible. And so what they'll see is they'll see elements of still polytheism and elements of tribal gods. And really it's not till Ezra in the fifth century where monotheism is actually embraced. And then they go back and redact and revise the Old Testament scriptures to, you know, show their monotheism. But we can still see traces of this other garbage. I mean, it's, it, it's complete garbage. It's, they, they, they invent it out of whole cloth. And they, then they impose their view. It's sort of like, you know, listening to your, your horoscope. You know, you hear them say, well, you're a Sagittarius. Well, Sagittarius are very intelligent and clever. And they make friends easy. And, and yet they get upset when people hurt them. And you say, oh, that's me. Wow, there must be something to this. And that's kind of what they're doing with the scriptures. They just read into it what they think they see. But what I, what I want to say is, that's not, the, that's not true. Monotheism was first. And in the garden of Adam and Eve, they knew there was only one God. It was, it was polytheism and animism that came out when man was scattered, especially after the flood. 
And you get these separate groups that have legends of the flood. By the way, all the American Indians, Eskimos, legends of a flood of some kind, worldwide flood. Gods are angry. It's all there. You still have memories of the truth, but then they, you know, they get further away from God and then they begin to invent gods and goddesses and that gives them some kind of satisfaction. That's what really happened. It was monotheism and then the scatterings of the people and then different peoples inventing their own gods. And it was, as um, whatever philosophy said, uh, Marx, the religion is the opiate of the masses. Yeah, it was when it's false. It was unscrupulous people in a lot of cases inventing gods and goddesses to control the people. And guess what? In the ancient world, the king was almost always the high priest because he has to have the religious power to actually control the people. And you see that. That's why you see some of these people Israel's going to war with and the king's offering the sacrifice. And sometimes Israel tried to impersonate that and the king would go in and try to do the sacrifice. God said, no, I have a different priesthood. But I say all this to say that monotheism was different in Israel. Because they maintained the truth. All right? And monotheism <clears throat> of the, um, that, that not only was Israel's God, you know, their God, but he was the only God. So Baal had, uh, the Canaanites had Baal. Egypt had Amnon. Babylon had Marduk. You get the Pantheon and Rome uh, <clears throat> and uh, Greece. Um, and, you know, uh, then they would do certain things and serve Certain served their gods, and if something bad happened, it was because you weren't serving your God enough. And so they, they, they kind of ape what's real, that God does judge the world. Um, <clears throat> but what I want to notice is that in Israel we have clearly monotheism. There is only one God, right from the beginning. Sometimes they'll mention other gods, but like the Psalms will talk about it and say, but they're actually made of stone and they're actually made of wood. And, and part of it he, he worships and part of it he puts in the fire and he cooks his food over. And it, it shows the ridiculousness of man making for himself false gods. But not only was Israel monotheistic, and that's unique, and the scholars try to find a way, again, they, they develop this evolution of religion to try to account for it, but evolution, or I'm sorry, uh, Israel was unique in this too, that they were called to love their God. The other nations, yeah, fear God, sacrifice to your God, you know, religious worship, all good, but never do we really see in the ancient world that what God really wants is you to love him. That's unique uh, in Israel. Uh, that, that Israel is called to love. And in a very real sense, it's true to say that the entire book of, his, of Deuteronomy is a commentary on the command. You shall love the Lord your God. All the obedience that's required, that's just an outflow of love. If you don't love, you're not going to obey. And God doesn't want you to obey without love. He wants you to love, and therefore you obey. But that's new. That's different. You don't find that in any of the ancient religions where the, the main thing is love the God, you know, our God. We have our God. We do things so that he does things for us. You have this working relationship. We're going to give God food. A lot of the offerings in the ancient world where your God needs you. He needs your worship. That's not in Israel. God doesn't need you. But he gives you the privilege of loving him. This is the best thing you could do in life. And so the commandments provide this framework of the expression of love. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to love him, to serve your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And it shall be, if you earnestly obey my commandments, which I command you today, to love the Lord your God and serve him with all your soul, then it will go well with you. 
It's not like God needs the love, but he loves his people. He wants them to love him because that's the best thing for them, that they would love him, that they would be who they ought to be, that they would experience more joy and more blessing. But they can't do that if they don't love him. So the sin of serving other gods, therefore, in Deuteronomy, is framed as an illicit love. Why do you love these other gods? Why do you commit adultery against me? Because love is priority. And that's how that makes sense. So Deuteronomy 30, 16, In that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply again. Not that you would earn life, but that you'll not walk into the sins that will bring judgment. You're going to walk imperfectly in my commandments, but that you would seek me and love me. But Deuteronomy 30, 17, If your hearts turn away, that you, do, that you do not hear. Notice it always begins with the heart. If your hearts turn away, then you won't hear. Then you'll draw it away. Then you'll worship other gods. Then you'll serve them, etc. All right, so Deuteronomy 16, 14 and 15 talk about this idea of God's jealousy. And again, that doesn't make sense except in the context of love. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of all the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be aroused against you and destroy you from the face of the earth. Not that the other gods are gods, but that, that you would go after them is uh, what idolatry and um, worshiping other gods is, to put them before you. All right, so Jesus then links again, keeping the commandments as the expression of love, and that's what he desires from the believer. That's what God loves. But the mere external obedience is not what is wanted either. If you look at Matthew 15, 8, where Jesus says, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And that's never what God wanted. All right, so there is an agreement with and a desire for what God wants. You have neither part nor portion in this matter, for your heart is not right in the sign of God. And you can remember when Jesus, after his resurrection, is restoring Peter. He doesn't talk to Peter about, I don't know, doctrine or faith or all sorts of other things. What's the one thing he says to Peter? Do you love me, Peter? See, that's what God wants. We see it in the world. I mean, God hasn't changed. Do you love me? Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to them the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, okay, now feed my sheep. Don't go out and just teach. Love me. Now you can go out and teach. All right. So we consider the rest of the Shema is to, again, so the Shema, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one, and you shall love the Lord your God. And then the rest of it, which is verses 6 through 9, is how Israel is to th- think about this, to teach this, right? These words which I command you to tell shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit by the way, when you walk uh, in your house, when you lie down, when you stand up. You'll bind them as a sign on your hands, frontlets on your eyes, doorposts. And so the idea of focusing on God's word as a way to continue to love him, as a way to not stray away from him. Get God's word in your heart. Israel, you can do this. Unfortunately, what Israel began to do was to literally do some of this stuff. And they would make these little boxes. And they would put the words in the boxes. Put them on their hair. Put them in their robes. And they would do that, not getting it in their heart. All of these things are just expressions to say, really get it in your heart. In your heart when you're doing this. In your heart when you're doing this. 
but get my word in your heart. And so the idea of uh, doing that was something that Israel needed to do. Um, and we get God's acts of love for his people then, even more so, when we get uh, uh, into the second part here. So I know this is the last section, and we've got a little bit of time left. All right, so God loves his people. He saved them. He forgives their sins. They are to love him. They are to worship him. And they are to be faithful uh, to him. His promise is to their fathers. He's going to keep his promises. And Israel is to respond because of what God has done. But Israel's good response, again, doesn't earn anything. It's showing that they love God and that they believe God. And they don't want to walk in sins to the point where God will judge. And they'll bring hardship on themselves. And so the Mosaic Covenant, again, is not new. It's a furtherance of what God did with Abraham. Here's where I want you to see this chart, then, of showing this kind of of love. Notice these four things in verses 10 and 11. So it shall be, when the Lord your God brings you into the land, of which he swore to your fathers. Here it is again. There's always that link. Why Why is God with us? Because of Abraham. We are in the Abrahamic covenant. This is just a a further explication and and furtherance of it. Which he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So this is why God is doing this. To what? To give you large and beautiful cities which you did not build. Do you see this? Israel hasn't deserved any of this. This is God's free love for his people. Again, in the Exodus... In the having of the land, which itself is a type. And yet in this type, God is emphasizing free, gracious love. What God has done for you. And you've not done anything to get it. All right? So, houses full of good things, which you did not fill. You know, do you ever um, price uh, furnished houses or furnished apartments? They're more. more. They, they cost more than to get an empty place that you've got to buy the furniture and you've got to put your own appliances in. God's giving his people furnished houses. Houses full of good things. Notice, full of all good things, which you didn't fill. Yewn out wells, which you did not dig. One of the interesting things about Israel is the wells are dug in solid rock. It's not like digging a well here, which would still be hard. You know, going down through the soil, the topsoil, and then you get into the clay and stuff. If you're keeping up with any of the war in Israel and those tunnels, those tunnels are solid rock. That's why it's so amazing that Hamas has made those tunnels. But they've done it over decades. And they've brought, you know, huge mining equipment like we would go and and look for coal. And so we have the technology to do that. But back then, to you wells out, to build a well, like if you build, this is why it's such a big deal when Abraham builds these wells and then the... You know, the Philistines come and take them. That was a lot. You invested a lot to, to get a well really deep through solid rock to get to water. And what God is saying is that I'm, I'm giving you wells. You not wells which you did not dig. And, of course, water in Israel is life or death. And finally, <clears throat> vineyards and olive trees which you did not plant. The two biggest crops in Israel were the grape, wine, raisins, and the olives, and the olive oil. Uh, and that was their big export. That was their, that was their prosperity. The, you know, the olive trade and the, and the wine trade. 
And God gives all of this to them freely. And what God says to them in the midst of this, notice, when you have eaten and are full, then beware, lest you forget the Lord your God. You know, we're going to see later in the service, worship service later, that Sodom and Gomorrah only happened because of the great prosperity that they had. You don't find homosexuality and, you know, this kind of sexual morass in like third world countries where they're fighting for survival. That doesn't happen there. You don't see them getting into, you know, we want our, our marriages recognized. When they have to like fight for food and for water and just to survive, that, that, that kind of sin only comes in when you're at ease, when you're in luxury, when you're able to have soft beds and you're able to start to think about ways in which you can satisfy your desires it's only when we get prosperous that we really have certain sins come in. And that's what God's warning is people. Then beware. So you're going to get all this stuff that you didn't do. Then beware, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. So the great fear of Israel was to hold on to the fear of the Lord. Or the great the threat was, that was prosperity. It was prosperity and luxury that God would give them because he loves them. And we know what happens when they get in Israel and they have a time of peace. The book of Judges shows us that over and over again, doesn't it? A judge is raised up. He delivers them. The people cry out, oh, Lord, help us. The Midianites are here. So he raises up Gideon. You know, Gideon conquers the Midianites and Israel has peace. And what do they do? They begin to go after false gods. And they go after false gods and God chastens them by bringing other nations in. And they cry out to God for a deliverer. And God sends them a Jephthah or somebody else. And he delivers them and they praise the Lord. And then they go to other gods. Whenever they get prosperous, whenever they have a time of peace, they begin to sin. And God sees that. He sees that in human nature. And that's why he warns them here. And he, uh, notice, notice the uh, admonition, you shall fear the Lord your God. There's a great need for the doctrine of the fear of the Lord. Not fear that he's going to cast me off if I don't do enough good works. Every time we talk about the fear of the Lord, somebody wants to slander us and say that. That's not what we're talking about. But that we would stay close to him. That we would recognize that God is a God who does not accept sin. And if you say you're his people and you have his word and you pray and you build churches and stuff and yet you start to go into sexual immorality or you start to go into pride and vanity, God is not going to sit up in heaven and say, oh, my people are so wonderful. Yeah, they're sinning, but there's nothing I can do because I love them through Jesus. He's going to bring chastening. He's going to bring judgments. The saved are not going to lose their salvation. But Daniel went into captivity just like everybody else, right? The, the righteous suffer with the wicked when God brings judgment. And we don't want that if we can help it. And so fear, serve, swear, don't go after other gods. God is trying to help his people. And these concepts are, are developed and they're shown to be broad and foundational. Look at verses 15 and 16. You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him. You shall keep his commandments diligently, which he commanded you. Again, you're not earning anything, but don't go into sin so that you earn punishment. You can earn that. 
right? And then 17 to 19, what Israel should focus on. Diligently keep the commandments. Do what is right in in his sight. Again, that it might be well with you. Because you're avoiding the sins that bring judgment. You're not earning blessing. That the Lord, uh, the land which he swore, he's going to cast out your enemies before you. But if you become like them, he's not going to do that. So Israel should focus their attention on following the Lord and his law. And then in verses 20 to 25, the last part of chapter 6, which is, again, the great Shema, what's it all about? Teaching the next generation. When your son asks you, what are the meaning of these testimonies? That's part of Israel's duty, to teach the next generation to fear God, to keep his commandments. But they're going to have to do it. They can't just say, well, mom and dad, we're good. I'm circumcised. Woo! They had to fear the Lord. They had to believe. And they had to follow him. The parents' duty was to teach, to bring them, right? To get that word in them. But we're going to see that in the text, the sermon text too. That Lot's house gets some blessing because of him. But every one of Lot's house who did not personally believe dies in Sodom. You can be in the covenant. You can have a covenant family. But you have to personally believe. We teach our children to believe. But they're not going to have the blessings if they don't. It's not enough to be in Israel. All right? And so that's the, that's the message of the great Shema. Unfortunately, Israel, modern Israel doesn't get that. Right? Modern Israel were the Jews. Our Abraham was our father. Very thing that John the Baptist said. God can raise up stones to Abraham. That's nothing. You have to fear the Lord and serve him. And that's the message of the great Shema. Any questions, comments, thoughts? You've all heard of that, right? That, that's the huge thing in Israel. Hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. You'll hear Jews to this day say that. And again, that's what Jesus said was the number one thing. The Shema. That's the number one thing to pious Jews today. Uh, they still have that. They just, they've lost the need for the mediator, which is the context, right? The context is we need someone to go between us and God. Moses fulfilled that role imperfectly. Somebody else had to take his place and somebody else. When's it going to end? When the Messiah comes and they're still waiting for him. So, yes, John. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there really isn't one. I mean, they have the priesthood and so forth. But there's no looking and longing for someone to come to fulfill this picture, which the priesthood was, was self-evident of. The priest himself couldn't go into God's presence without offering his own. Something had to put an end to this every year. Atonement for all the sins. And then every day, it just, it's a never-ending thing. We can never get into God's presence. Israel's system cried out for that, and the mediator showed them that. But yeah, in other religions, you're good. Do your works, you're good. You know, do the five pillars, blow yourself up, get your 72 versions. You're good by your works. So anyway, let's uh, close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that even in the beginning of, of your law, you show us our need for grace, our need for a mediator. And Lord Jesus, how we thank you that you came and fulfilled these things, and that you are the one who has made peace between God and man. You have redeemed and reconciled us that we can come boldly all the way before the throne into presence of heaven itself. So help us to now prepare to do that as we worship you in spirit and truth and that spiritually we would be in your presence. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.